Hello and welcome to the Tally Room podcast. This is the first episode of a new podcast where we'll be discussing Australian elections and I'm your host Ben Rowley. In today's episode we'll be discussing the latest election news, the strange upcoming state by-election in Perth and the lack of women representing the Liberal Party. I'm joined by two guests today for our first discussion. My first guest is Stuart Jackson. Hi Ben. Hi Stuart and uh, my second guest is Megan clement Kuzner. Hi Ben. Hi everyone. So this is actually our second attempt at doing our first podcast. <laughs> we, uh, we got together last week and had a bit of a chat and had some problems with the, the audio uh, not saving. So we're back this week um, wiser and knowing more about um, what we're doing here. And uh, hopefully, hopefully people will uh, enjoy what we're doing. But, you know, we're starting off slow and um, we're starting with the basics of the conversation and then we'll, we'll fill it in with a lot more stuff later. So hopefully people find it interesting and can bear with us as we um, uh, get a bit better at doing these kind of things. So uh, we, what we're going to start with is we're going to have a bit of a segment about a few news stories that have been happening recently. And then we're going to go into our main topics uh, and we're going to start by talking about the by-elections that are coming up. As you might know, campaigns are heating up for five federal by-elections that are due at the end of July. And we've started to see some polling giving us a sense of each of the seats. There have been two different polls from the South Australian seat of Mayo. And both polls gave sitting Central Alliance MP Rebecca Sharkey 58% of the two-party preferred vote against the Liberal candidate, Georgina Dowman. The polling has been more favourable to the coalition in two other seats, with a 52-48 lead in Longman and a 54-46 lead in Braddon. Both of those seats are held by Labor, who will be hoping to hold on to them in the lead up to the federal election. National polls have suggested that Labor is still leading in the race for the next federal election, with some recent polls affirming that Labor holds a small but stable lead. A national reach-tell poll two weeks ago gave Labor 52% of the two-party preferred vote, which was no change on the previous poll. A more recent essential poll has Labor leading with 54% after preferences. This is an increase from 51% in the last essential poll. Um, both of these polls were a few weeks old now from the start of June, but last weekend we got a more recent news poll that has Labor steady at 52%. So that's we've got three polls in June so far. They've all got Labor in the lead. Uh, 52, 54, 52. Um, it's not an overwhelming figure, but it's it's a it's a small but steady lead. And we can think of it really in terms also of, of between 52 and 54. Even if you think of that 51% essential poll, it's all within the margin of error, and it's looking solid and stable, which I think is the the thing that you would draw from that set of polls at this point in time. So I wouldn't be betting on an election anytime soon, frankly. We've recently seen a provincial election in um, Canada, in Ontario. Um, why the Ontario election, which had a sitting Liberal, that's the Canadian Liberal um, government, it was roundly defeated, uh, it saw its uh, numbers reduced to seven. At one point it was looking like they might only win you know, two or three seats. Keeping in mind that Ontario has a first-past-the-post system. The right-wing opposition um, under... Um, Doug Ford, Rob Ford, the crack-smoking mayor um, of Toronto, his brother, um, actually took the uh, Conservatives to a victory. Uh, They'll be very happy with that. Large majority, despite only polling just over 40% of the vote. 
Um, the, as I say, the Liberal Party collapsed to third place and the progressive vote split very much between the Liberal Party and the left-wing New Democrat Party. Um, the NDP actually saw their polls soar midway through the campaign and then, sadly for them, level out, um, such that they end up as the official opposition, but not in government, as they might have just for a moment speculated about. Um, between them, Liberal Party and the NDP polled 53%, but the split vote led to the right-wing victory. A big part of the story in Ontario was how the voting system helped the Conservatives take power. And that leads us on to Maine, which last week conducted its first major election using the ranked choice voting system, which Australians might know as preferential voting. Um, and that was in the primaries that were conducted last Tuesday. So they were electing, choosing candidates for governor and for Congress and things like that. Um, the state's Republican governor, Paula Page, was elected twice in 2010 and 2014 without a majority of the vote. And that led to a referendum in 2016, which saw a switch to preferential voting. Um, now, the state legislature tried to overturn that and effectively push it back five years. But they, uh, there was a referendum conducted last week that um, passed about 55% in favour, which has put um, preferential voting back on track. And we also had the first elections on the same day. So there were seven candidates running for governor on the Democratic side and four running for governor on the Republican side. And in the coming days, we're going to see them distribute the preferences. And this is the first time we've seen this happen. Yeah, the interesting part for me is still that they have a relatively slow process for doing this distribution of preferences. I'm left going, and I can understand why in terms of return of you know absentees and postals and or what they would call postals. Um, and yet, here in Australia, we've got it down to a well-honed um, system so that everything happens on the right day. So you do get uh, an election result on the day, unlike um, these poor people in the United States who haven't quite worked out how to do it properly yet. I'm sure they will. What is particularly interesting about Maine is it set off the discussion again in Canada. Um, Justin Trudeau was elected on a platform. Part of his platform was that he would introduce... Um, PR, or one for either preferential or proportional representation, he's dropped electoral reform saying Canada's not ready for it. Um, it had been tried in British Columbia and hadn't got anywhere. Um, it's resurfaced in Prince Edward Island, one of the smallest of the provinces, um, but they're now talking about perhaps they'll have a referendum on it, perhaps they'll just the legislature will just vote on it. So that's certainly gotten back off the ground in Canada, um, and it may yet grow longer legs. Um, and actually then start to um, perhaps trickle into some of the other North American constituencies. Certainly, I, I think there'd be some lefties in Ontario, lefties and centre-lefties, who might be wishing that they had preferential voting right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, part of the fight at the federal level was that the Liberals and the New Democrats didn't agree on the system. The Liberals just wanted preferences and the New Democrats wanted mm. to go further. Which is, you know, that classic, you know, lefty left and further left split. You know, do we have PR or preferential? A preferential retains single member electorates, doesn't really fairly represent you know, um, parties that have perhaps even support. You know, good for a rural party or a city party. So I'm sure that the Liberals would have loved the idea because they'd pick up lots of seats uh, in um, city areas. Um, shame that they couldn't quite get that sorted out because it still opens up the possibility of what we have seen in, the U in both the US and also in Canada. Uh, the, the Canadian, the British Columbian election a few years ago now, 
um, where the progressive conservatives, I think it was, no, it must have been the um, liberals, got about 52, 53% of the vote, but actually got 90% of the seats. It was such an unweighted election. It looked quite bizarre. Maine is the first state to use preferential voting, but it's not the first time we've seen it in America. So quite a few American cities use preferential voting. And um, it's kind of an evolution from what we discussed last week, the jungle primary that they use in somewhere like California, where it's a, you, ha- you have everyone in the, f- in the primary up against each other, Republicans, Democrats, and instead of just one from each party going through to the next round, you just pick the top two of any party and they go through again. And it's kind of designed for lopsided party systems that can be quite off. This is, I have to say, a completely mind-blowing concept to me. So last week when we were talking about jungle primaries, you were explaining that it's possible for your everyday citizen to kind of vote in the primaries of the major parties in the US. Is Mm. that right? Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on the state, but in some states, when you, most states, when you register you choose a party and you're effective effectively that's what party membership is like parties are effectively affiliated to the state in that way and um and then some states let anyone vote in a primary and other ones let people vote if they're registered but primaries are very large elections of can be hundreds of thousands or millions of people voting. Depending, of course, uh, this is the interesting part, because some of the primaries you end up with really, really small turnouts. You know, and obviously when you get down to, you know, you're choosing for your local legislator in your state like Maine, you might have a couple of thousand people voting. And of course, some are uncontested, which we never see in Australia anymore, haven't seen it for a very long time, uncontested, uh, certainly state elections. Occasionally see it at the council level. Um, but not in the city areas. Uh, You also have, I mean, this is the thing to say, you have Democrats, Republicans and independents, but they do also allow Greens or Libertarians or some of the parties, again, depending on the state, to hold their own primaries. And then we have the jungle primary. And that's just more fun. Louisiana and California, the great proponents of the jungle primary. My favourite example of how the regular system of primaries can be a problem is you have a lot of places in America where the party balance is extremely lopsided, particularly in the big cities, and a lot of big city elections, whoever wins the Democratic primary just de facto wins the general election. But the primary has a lot fewer people voting, if only because it's held earlier in the year and at a less convenient time. And there's an example of that in The Wire that we were discussing last week, the TV show from about 10 years ago, where... Uh, the big election in it is actually not the general election, it's the primary, and there's this kind of long lag where the sitting mayor is still in office after the election while he waits for a general election where the Republican is very weak. So a jungle primary solves that problem by effectively moving that main contest to the end of the year. Listeners, you can't see us, but my face is just... uh a picture of shock right now because The Wire is my wife's favorite show and we have watched it through probably three times. I may have been on my phone a lot the third time around. But it ne- this is such a foreign concept to me as an Australian voter that it never occurred to me that the primary was where the mayor was actually chosen. Somehow this just did not compute as a as a possibility. I think it's so far from our experience as Australian electors. 
Yeah, it's, and it's, it's a very different system. California, in that way, the system that they have now resembles ours in a bit in that there is a runoff, but it's also quite different. And it has that problem still that the top two go through, but you could have a situation where there's a very small gap between two and three. And it's, it's entirely arbitrary that the second place candidate gets to go through to the runoff and the third place doesn't. And you can end up in situations where even when the party balance is quite close, um, one party could get both of the, set, the spots in the runoff just because they, uh, they're running less candidates and their vote is more efficiently distributed. And you can have a situation where two Republicans are running and 10 Democrats and the 10 Democrats split the vote in such a way that the race is over and the Republican has won. And I mean, you don't have those problems under our system. Like you can, people can get elected from third or fourth. It doesn't happen very often, but that can happen. It's not something we need to worry about. I think that's true. But something that I do wonder about is whether or not it makes the party system in America a lot more open than the party system in Australia. And I think here, if you're a member of a political party, it implies a much closer affiliation than uh being a registered party voter in the USA. Is that right? Or is that a misconception? Well, well. <laughs> now here's the interesting thing about the, the way the primaries have tended to work. In the jungle primary system, yes, it can throw up some odd candidates who can do rather well. And indeed, a normal primary system can throw up some uh, fun candidates. The, um, the open Nazi who is running for the Republican Party in Wisconsin because he was the only person to actually file the necessary paperwork. Oh my God, that is terrible. So you have this problem where sometimes that system can generate um, some quite odd characters. Now, the issue is going to be that come the general election, the Democrats are going to say, so vote for the Republicans, you'll be voting for a Nazi, um, which isn't going to play out well. Right? Um, in Australia, you know, you can have, uh, usually you don't get quite such interesting characters um, ending up as candidates, but that's the thing you can have with a very, very open primary system is you can end up with odd, uh, odd characters. And it's not, however, unknown in Australia for a person who was not expected to win whatsoever, therefore nobody else nominated, they just didn't think about it, and that person to go on to win. Um, from memory, it was the seat of Swan Hills in um, Western Australia in 2001. Um, wasn't expected to go to the Labor Party. It was either 2001 or 2004, but wasn't expected to go to the Labor Party. Um, young woman, uh, just out of university, decides to nominate. The usual candidate didn't get his forms to the party in time, so didn't get to be the candidate. And there was a swing to the, part, to the Labor Party and they romped it in. Well, I mean... I feel like you're straying into Barry Urban territory there, but the, my favourite example of that is the New Democrats in, in Canada had a very good election uh, and nearly all of their extra seats came in Quebec where they'd only ever held one seat and they ended up winning nearly every seat in the province. And they had like five university students who got elected, people who uh, were elected to francophone seats in Quebec who didn't speak French. Um, oh, my Lord. People who weren't, they weren't in their constituency. They were in Montreal, like, with their university group on election night, and then they got a call saying, you better come home because we think you've been elected. <laughs> so, well, the popularity of Jack Layton at that election was so high, it just went through the roof coming into the election. Um, I, unfortunately, he was the leader of the New Democrats. He unfortunately died not long after the election. It wasn't expected to do so well. But I wanted to come back to the point, Meg, you made about the, how much more open the American party system is because I do think that there is something that 
if you join a party in Australia, it's much more of a commitment. Uh, even if you don't have a lot of power within the party, uh, there's still it's still a much smaller group of people who are affiliated formally to a party. And the, the people who have influence over who is a candidate is much smaller. So in a way, it doesn't mean as much to call yourself a Democrat or a Republican. And I think that's part of the reason that someone like Bernie Sanders can, even though he was otherwise an independent, can be affiliated to the Democratic Party and run in their presidential primary. Whereas I feel like the politics of the Clinton and Sanders race doesn't take place all within one party in most other countries. Like in most other countries, that kind of dynamic takes place um, in a multi-party system. You know, whether it's our system or a European system where you might have multiple parties of the left and different kind of persuasions. So there's an element in America that that kind of that negotiation happens within the parties because the parties are such big tents that they cover almost everything. And part of that is the primary because the primary does limit the power of the power brokers to lock everything down. Except I I would suggest that's not actually entirely true. What we saw in this last round of um, uh, primaries that have been happening over the last few weeks in the US is that establishment candidates, those backed by the Republican or GOP um, establishment or Democrat establishment, have been the ones that are winning. They're also the ones that are attracting the most money. And at the end of the day, um, it's a you know it's a financial arms race. U.S. elections, given that the presidential election is still only two and a half years away, um, will be a billion dollar per per candidate election. Enormous elections. So I see what I you're wonder. saying there, Stuart, but I guess I'm curious because I think the last few elections that we've seen in the U.S. have seen outsider or so-called outsider candidates take the lead in the Democratic Party. So Bernie was an outsider candidate and Obama before him. I realize that these are still guys who managed to raise huge amounts of money, but I don't know, riddle me that one. Mark Latham, there you go. There's your outsider candidate. Consider the number uh, of um, candidates come out to election, and this actually comes into Darling Range, which I know we're gonna talk about, who have to stand aside. Uh, whether they've actually been elected or they're only a candidate and they haven't even, you know, they've been pre-selected. And then people find out something about them. Um, you're a candidate, you're a liberal candidate standing in the hills and you can't remember the four key points that you're supposed to remember. You know, you don't get the slogan right. and no, that's it, you know, you're done. So odd candidates can get through. Liberal Party MP Jane Prentice, who represents the Brisbane seat of Ryan, lost LNP pre-selection for her seat last month. She is one of only 14 coalition women holding seats in the lower house and they sit alongside 62 coalition men. Since then, we've seen Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison step in to protect Anne Sudmalis from a pre-selection challenge in Gilmore and a lot of discussion about why the Liberal Party has such a low number of women in Parliament. So, I mean, I'll go to you first, Meg. Like, what do you think is holding them back? Do you think it's it's, uh, Liberal Party voters don't want to vote for women? Well, I think that the research suggests that the electorate on these matters tends to be much less conservative than politicians who are in parliament in Australia um, on matters of race and gender and just generally the politics of the electorate tend to be less conservative than um, those of people who are elected to parliament and also the makeup of parliament tends to be not reflective of the actual community so we know based on any kind of photo that you see of the Australian parliament that there's just a lot more um, 
stale pale males, so to speak. So I would have to guess... That's a quotable quote, you know, by the way. (laughs) You're welcome. You can have it. Uh, I would have to guess that it's the politics of the Liberal Party rather than the actual electorate. But then I guess common sense does say that the electorate has to have something to do with it. So... Yeah, I mean, so there was research that um, I put together last week on the number of candidates running in types of seats. And what we found was if you look at if you take out the incumbent MPs who tend to be more male than the rest of the electorate Labor's actually doing really well they're running 50-50 and what's interesting is in the marginal seats um, where they're not running incumbent MPs the coalition actually is running lots of women but in their safe seats they ran practically no women for any of those seats at the last election who weren't already incumbents so you look at it that way and it looks like Labor is getting closer and closer to parity but the Liberal Party seems stuck uh, and doesn't appear to be really bringing in many women, particularly in those safe seats. So I find that interesting that there are a lot more women representing marginal seats than safe seats. And you wouldn't expect that if there was any kind of electorate um, problem with running women for, for Parliament. So my theory is that the Liberal Party does need women to campaign for it because they look like the rest of the community. Uh, they look like half of the community. Um, I think that in this situation, if we compare the Liberal Party to the leaders of Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale, Jane Prentice is Serena Joy. She's campaigned hard for the Liberal Party. She wants the Liberal Party to be in government and now they've taken away her books and they're not letting her write with her pencil anymore. I think that... um, You know, women run, women are in the Liberal Party and they have to be hungry, right? They have to be ambitious women in the Liberal Party and they're running in the marginal seats, but they're not getting access to the crown jewels of uh, the seats that the Liberal Party wins. No, but we also have to think about where the skews are within the electorate. Um, You'd think if the electorate was tending to be uh, more liberal, sorry, that's more left, mm-hmm. uh, left mm-hmm. liberal, and women were, you know, they're 50% of the population, um, and they're tending not to vote for conservative men, you'd think that the uh, Liberal Party would be on the way out or would have a rump. They don't, and they're capable of winning elections. A, that means it must be a sizable number of women voting for them, or an enormous skew. Uh, um, in terms of uh, men voting overwhelmingly for them if women aren't. Um, I think this is why they put up women in the first place, particularly into you know marginal electorates where all the media attention is on, is on those marginal electorates. And so they're able to say, look, we're running women. We're good. You, know, you can vote for us, particularly in those marginal electorates that we need to win to form government. Mm-hmm. Come uh, an, an election victory, a large election victory, for the Liberal Party, should this happen again, they'll actually sweep a large number of women into um, Parliament. Whether, of course, they stay there is another thing. Yeah, and I think large is a relative term, you know. A large proportion for for the Liberal Party is still going to be a pretty far cry from catching up with the Labour Party, I would think. Yeah, and I mean, over the last 20 years, we've seen Labour's numbers increase, whereas... You know, under the Howard government, you had people like Jackie Kelly and Dana Vale representing suburban marginal seats, um, but the, they haven't really moved forward, which raises another question as well about 
what happens when people get into parliament that there's there's obviously barriers that stop people from getting pre-selected which i'm not sure we fully understand um but they definitely exist but then there's also barriers that stop people advancing to the ranks and you know we in the first abbott government there was only one woman in cabinet for a while and things like that um and i think if you have most of those women in marginal seats mps in marginal seats don't last as long they either lose their seat or it's just a harder job and you don't have as much time to take on other jobs like being a minister and does does that mean that even if you have a lot of people in those roles they don't rise to the ranks to actually become senior leaders I think it's I think it's deeper than that in terms of the Liberal Party, um, particularly given that they have been quite happy at various times to elevate people immediately out of um, being a first time MP to being you know, a cabinet member. So it was certainly to the outer ministry. So it's certainly not unheard of in that sense. I mean, it can be very very quick rises. Um, in terms of marginality of seats, yes, but then we have redistributions which can change that, can make it better, can make it worse. If they're good constituency MPs and the government travels moderately well, they can actually maintain, if not increase, their own votes. Sometimes they'll get swept away in a tide, you know, that old bit about uh, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, well, same when it goes out. Um, but I think there is something in, inside, you know, actually getting more women in Parliament actually creates the sense that you should have more women in Parliament. The Labor Party's gone ahead with it. Um, the Greens have, have traditionally had, you know, fairly balanced, balanced representation. Laggards are in reality parties like the National Party, um, which at times has selected some excellent candidates but put them into seats where they've got, you know, not a 50-50 chance of winning but, you know, considerably less. And so they've seen some quite unbalanced representation. Um, you can look to One Nation, who runs a wide variety of fascinating and interesting candidates, um, but then you look at who's number one in their Senate candidates. You, know, you look at those sorts of people and then you realise that, hang on, um, this isn't very well balanced other than for Pauline Hanson. And so you see that continue through uh, into some of the smaller right-wing parties. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think the thing with the Liberal Party is that organised feminism or organ- uh, even organised kind of women's representation without calling it feminism would just be so antithetical to their core ideology. I think that um, while the Labour Party is far from perfect on these matters, and as you say, Ben, there's still um, problems that kind of flow on into whether or not women are in cabinet, in leadership positions, and of course, what happened with their one female prime minister. I think I just really struggle to see the Liberal Party kind of organising its way out of this. I, I'm not sure over time how they're going to improve it other than, as you suggested, Stuart, by... Fluking a big election win. That's right. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the, the odd part, perhaps, is that, you know, you consider who was the first woman prime minister in New Zealand. It was Jenny Shipley from the National Party. You realise the first female prime minister in the United Kingdom was Margaret Thatcher. You can go through a whole lot of women who've made it uh, into top leadership positions within conservative parties and, in fact, been the first... Um, Yet that doesn't seem to have been the case necessarily in Australia. It seems to have been uh, an overseas thing that's happened, Um, which makes me wonder if the Liberal Party itself is is, uh, different constitutionally or its constituent parts are so Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. that we, we fall into a problem of saying, well, look at Margaret Thatcher. 
you know, and say yeah, that's a different set of, set of issues and a different structure of how you get candidates. Here, New South Wales, the state um, the state council has a big say. So actually, the state party could intervene quite severely, but we don't have that. I mean, Tony Abbott's big thing here was, oh well, we'll have the constituencies do it. You know, we'll actually have the local members. That's got an even bigger chance of turning out your stale pale males um, more than you know perhaps. So I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I take your point, and I actually think, well, that actually um, presents us with a real problem for the Liberal Party, or presents the Liberal Party with a real problem going forward, that perhaps their current ideology is not going to allow them to pull more women in. Unlike Menzieite liberals, you know, 1950s liberals, I mean, Menzies was a street fighter when it came to politics, but it was an expansive view, and I mean, it was a welcoming view, and it was an inclusive view. Um, perhaps that's not what we're seeing now in the Liberal Party. Yeah, I think that maybe it's a case of when women are elected to the Liberal Party um, in Australia, they're also not able to kind of put the resources in place to help more help more other women get elected. Uh, whether that's a case of kind of deliberately pulling the ladder up behind you or just not having the resources to make something like that happen, I'm not sure. So we'll, we'll keep watching that as we get closer to the election and I'm sure we'll observe who gets pre-selected um, for the parties as, as we get into the next federal election, whenever that might be. Um, but our next topic is the before the federal by-elections that are coming up at the end of July, we actually have a by-election this weekend uh, and it's happening in Perth in the state seat of Darling Range. Um, and I'm going to throw to Stuart to tell us a little bit about that seat. Ah, Darling Range. Um, it used to be, and I, this is my dirty secret as well, it used to be a seat that covered um, much more of the central hills, Kalamunda, Lesmurdy, places like that. And 20 years ago, 21, 22 years ago now, I was a candidate uh, in, that, in a, a state election for the seat of Darling Range. Um, so I actually, I actually do know the area. I grew up around there. Uh, the seat's moved further to the south, um, it still uh, swings around um, uh, Perth or certainly the, the outer suburbs. I'm picking out much more of the southern suburbs, you know, Armadale, Byford, places like that, Serpentine, Jarrodale. Uh, it does also pick up um, orchards and vineyards and chook sheds. Uh, used to be, you know, uh, forestry. It sounds so atmospheric, Stuart. <laughs> um, it should, if it was a little bit more... Uh, Towards the coast, it would pick up um, your Pentecostals and your Evangelicals. Less atmospheric. <laughs> um, a very interesting sort of area uh, at the end of the day. Um, it's, it's particularly interesting given the previous conversation about women in um, politics. A marginal seat, uh, both the Labour and Liberal Party have two women, or two, both of them have a woman running for them. So perhaps there's another case of marginal seat, better put a woman up. If it was a safe seat, would the West Australian Liberal Party have done that? open question mm, interesting and they're both relatively young women as well i think yeah and uh there was actually there's actually been three women pre-selected for the major parties because labor labor's first attempt didn't work out and that and that brings us to the former mp who's been forced to resign barry urban who um there's a saying i've heard that a high tide brings in some driftwood and the WA Labor Party had a very good election in 2017. He got a 19% swing in Darling Range. Nobody wow. Really, nobody really expected him to get elected. 
the much vaunted vetting of candidates, I think is where you were going to go with that. The much vaunted Labor vetting of candidates may have slipped up in this case. Yeah, so he, so um, Barry Urban, it was discovered that he was wearing medals to do with police service that he hadn't earned. And once that was exposed, the whole story came out of all the different things in his background that he that was not true. And uh, eventually he resigned, but they were, they were on the verge of kicking him out of the parliament, which is extremely rare for basically everything um, that he said about his background being false, university degrees and all sorts of things. And it kind of the victim... A Walter Mitty character, you know. Oh, Meg's face, Meg's face. I'm, I'm sorry, listeners. I've just kind of stopped Ben by virtue, I think, of the sheer horror and confusion on my face about this character Barry Urban how can someone make up such a background story I blows my mind yeah well I mean I don't know if you didn't think he'd get elected but um that's probably it he probably thought he wasn't going to be elected one of the consequences of of uh Barry Urban's issues was that the next Labour candidate who was replacing him had a small, a relatively small issue with her CV that she had an old LinkedIn page. She hadn't used it for anything public. She'd taken it down when she became a candidate, but it mentioned an MBA that she was undertaking and it didn't refer to the fact that she hadn't finished it yet. She'd completed like a year of it or something. Should have had the word incomplete or something on there. Um, But it just said that she had an MBA and the Liberal Party made it a big issue in the campaign and whipped it up and it ended up um, bringing her unstuck and in the end she withdrew and Labor found a new candidate and uh, I, I it'll be interesting to see whether that what impact that has on the on the race and what people think of that because it you know in any other case it probably wouldn't have been a big deal but after everything that had happened and interestingly in the wake of all of that Labor's polling pretty well there at the moment aren't they yeah so there's I mean we already know that at the state level, Labor has been doing very well, and mm. federal polls suggest that Labor is up in WA. So even with all of the problems that they've had in this seat, you'd expect them to have a good chance. And for whatever it's worth, and um, it's one poll and it's a small sample, but there was a Reachtel poll on Sunday that had Labor on 54% 2PP in Darling Range, which would be a comfortable, solid victory if that's what they got. Salt pinch large thereof, you know. Um, it's a it's a seat poll. We can't unfortunately trust seat polls it's indicative perhaps and that will give labor people much more heart coming into it uh, and perhaps um, maybe even dishearten a few of the uh, liberal um, party members there as well um, it may galvanize both sides either way uh, we know also that there'll be a slightly lower turnout now the issue is going to be getting people making sure that people turn out because you have absentee votes you have people not realizing there's a by-election on forgetting about it doing all the things when you have a general election you can't avoid it but a by-election is a little trickier so it might just be that there's now even a little bit of notice that you actually have to go out and vote in darling range Maybe it's actually starting to show, actually, yes, the Labor Party's doing well enough and enough people know about it and they're going to be out there and they're going to actually go and turn up to vote. So, so we will be back next week with, uh, with uh, another podcast and um, we'll be covering the results of that by-election as well as other topics. Uh, we will definitely be returning at some point to the topic of seat-specific polling because that has been a big controversy recently and there's, there's been some really interesting research on that area, but we're going to come back to that later. But um, we're going to finish now with this first episode. Um, 
So uh, firstly, I want to thank uh, Meg and Stuart for joining me and thank you to everyone for listening. Um, so we're planning to do episodes every two weeks, but we'll, we'll try to squeeze one in next week. And if you're interested in this, you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever um, podcast app you prefer to use. And you can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast will be available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye.